It's a news article back from 1999 that reported of a serious church split. Holy Creek Baptist Church in Maryland was split down the middle. A hundred years of fellowship and unity were wiped away as the church members segregated into factions. And what was the cause of the split? It was a piano bench, which still sits behind the 1923 Steinberg to the left of the pulpit. Members were constantly at odds over the placement of the piano bench. And they bickered about this for ten years. Eventually, the piano bench issue became so contentious that they decided to separate and go their separate ways. Currently, the Holy Creek Church has two services. Each faction will have its own service with its own separate pastor. Services are far enough apart that neither of the groups will come into contact with one another. Furthermore, an outside party has been tasked with moving the piano bench to different locations and appropriate positions between services so as to please both sides and avoid any future conflict. Now, when you hear this story from this article... I'm curious what you think. You're probably partly amused, but then also partly ashamed because they call themselves Christians. Well, I have good news for you and that the story is fake. This was written as a satire of Christian church splits. But here's the sad thing. The sad thing is I bet when you heard this, you didn't really think it was fake. The sad thing is that story is plausible to us. We can actually fathom of a church splitting over something as trivial as the placement of the piano bench. Some of you may have been part of rather trivial church splits in the past, and certainly have heard about it. What is usually the source of such splits? Well, an old survey identified just 2% of churches splitting due to doctrinal or theological issues. That Those have all been settled. The vast majority, if not all of the church splits these days, happen due to interpersonal issues. People who just can't get along. And most of the time, what divides them is music. Music style, the instruments used, the music leader. It's got to be some of the most divisive issues of our day. It sounds crazy, and it is sad, but it is also true. And over the past several messages, I've been introducing you to this phenomenon known as the worship wars, where over the past 50 years, churches right and left have been splitting over the issue of music in the church. Now, thankfully, we're not in any danger of that here, but with some of our own little recent music changes, it's been an issue that's been in my heart, and I've wanted to shepherd you through it so that you can rightly evaluate and appreciate music worship in the church. And today we come to the fifth and final installment of this little mini-series, which means, separately, that yes, next Sunday we'll finally get back to the Gospel of Mark. But today I want to wrap things up and answer some final questions we've had don't have a lot of time for recap, so I'd really encourage you to go on our website, if you haven't, and download the first four messages, because they form the foundation of everything we're going to be talking about today. Speaking of which, today we'll be focusing on how we express our worship to God. Today we're going to finally answer all those questions about the externals of worship. What's legitimate, what's not, musically, what, what can we do, what can we not do, what's appropriate, you know, singing, what style, instruments, which ones are allowed or not allowed. And also, what about bodily expressions like clapping or raising your hands or bowing down? Do these have a place in worship? What about dancing? I mean, all these questions we're going to finally address, all these things that deal with the externals of worship, we're finally going to address them all today. Now, I will say, I understand that these are probably the questions that most people care about the most, And chances are, these are the types of questions you wanted me to answer from the beginning of this study in this series. You just want to know, you know, tell us already, are drums of the devil or not? You just just can't just answer that question, we'll move on. But I want to make sure that you understand why I didn't start with these issues, why we've had four messages before this. Now I'll say it this way. I want to make sure you never confuse the essence of worship with the expression of worship. That's another way of saying don't substitute style for substance. What matters most in our worship to God, it's the essence. Jesus put the essence of worship this way, which was our third message, that true worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. God wants truth-informed, heart-driven worship. In your spirit, in your heart, the truth of God must move you 
And that results in a heart of praise, which forms true worship to God. That's the essence of worship. You need to get that right above all. So basically, you know, more or less, we spent the first four messages doing that, trying to focus on and get the essence of true worship right before God. I mean, understand, if you get the essence of worship right, we're going to find out today that the expression of worship, it's pretty simple, it's pretty obvious, it falls right into place. But if you get the essence of worship wrong, your expression will always be wrong. It's just false worship, no matter what you do. That's actually the problem so many have today, that the source of a lot of conflict in these worship wars stems from an overemphasis on the expression, the externals of worship, which doesn't matter nearly as much as the heart of worship. The externals, they don't mean anything to God if your heart is not right before him. So don't put the cart before the horse. You want to get things right, in the right order. You have to start with the true heart of worship for God before you should even bother about how that worship is to be expressed on the outside. Now, that's not to say that the expression of worship is unimportant. It is important. That's why we're talking about it today. But hopefully you see you've got to get the foundation of true worship first. Now, that said, we've done that. So we, we've spent that time. We've, we've labored to lay the foundation. Now, today, we're finally ready to address all these external issues and, and wrap the discussion up. So let's get into that now. And as we learn the worship of God, it starts with the truth. The truth of God, we hear it. It invades our hearts. It transforms our hearts. It produces within us hearts of God, or hearts of worship for God. If you are a, a true believer, your heart will just be on fire for the Lord. You'll want to praise him. But one of the last questions we had is, okay, true worship, it starts in the heart, but does it end in the heart? Does it ever come out of our hearts and, and go elsewhere? We found that last week, yes. Yes, heart worship should be expressed, for instance, in our emotions and our experiences. There is a wrong place for emotion and experience in worship. But there is a legitimate, proper place, and that was all last week. You'll just have to get that message. But what about other externals? Should our internal heart worship of God ever be reflected on the outside in any way, you know, with our voices, with our hands, with our feet, or, or not? Are we to sit silently and motionless during worship music time, just contemplating on the truth we're hearing? Or does God expect us to express what should be going on in our hearts? Well, that's what we're going to find out today. And do you so? Let's just go with this, give you a little outline to follow along with. Number one, the primary expression of worship to God is the human voice. The primary expression of worship to God is just your voice. It's singing. It's the human voice. This shouldn't be surprising. God wants us to use our voices to praise him. He is pleased when we declare his name in the assembly. In the New Testament, which is obviously most relevant to us, there's actually only nine verses that deal with the church's musical worship at all. That's it. Only nine verses. And they all have to do with singing. I'll list them out for you. Three of the verses, they merely describe other Christians singing. So you have Matthew 26, verse 30 records Jesus and the disciples singing hymns after the Lord's Supper. You have Acts 16.25, where Paul and Silas are singing hymns while they're in jail in Philippi. 1 Corinthians 14.15, Paul references his practice of singing with the Spirit and with the mind also. That's three of the nine verses. Two of the nine verses merely quote Old Testament verses on singing. Romans 15.9, Hebrews 2.12. So we're just left with four verses that actually prescribe something about worship to the church, and they all just have to do with singing. And then two of them are, are almost identical. I'll read these for you now. Colossians 3.16, which is basically identical to Ephesians 5.19, says that the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts, to God. That really is a model passage, even though we only have a few. That's a significant one. We see the pattern. The truth of God invades us. It produces thankfulness in our hearts, and that should result in singing with psalms, with hymns, with spiritual songs. There's a variety of ways to sing, but that's a key verse. Hebrews 13, 15 
says through Jesus, through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And then finally, James 5.13 says, if anyone is, if, is anyone among you suffering, then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful, he is to sing praises. And that's it. That's everything the New Testament has to say about musical worship in the church. Now, did you notice one thing these nine verses have in common? They all had nothing to say about instruments. There's not a single word in the New Testament about musical instruments used in worship and, and singing praise to God. They're, just, they're not mentioned. There's not an example. There's not a command. There's, just, there's nothing about instruments in worship. Yeah, instruments are mentioned a few times in the New Testament, but never in the context of the church's worship, the corporate worship of the church. So what does that fact teach? Well, first and foremost, it teaches that to God, there's only one instrument he really cares about, and that's your voice, the human voice. God has given you the only instrument you really need to worship him, and he wants and expects you to use your instrument in music worship. This is why I've been saying for many messages now that the instruments, they they don't matter that much. Well, we'll see that more later today, but... What does matter is your voice. God wants to hear you sing. And you should want to sing. As your heart is filled with the truth, you should just bubble up like a balloon filled with too much air and should just burst and you should want to express that. And the primary way we express that thankfulness to God is with with our song, with our voice. You should be singing, which is to say, declaring God's glory to the world. Just imagine walking into a church And during their music worship, nobody's singing. They're just standing there like tombstones. A few people are mouthing the lyrics, but you can barely hear them. It's just just dead and quiet. Now, how sad, how how depressing is that? To believers, that's discouraging. To non-believers, it's a poor witness. And to God, it's not pleasing worship. It just seems disingenuous. Your heart worship should translate to you singing. God's praises, and that's why we do it. It's not just a ritual. It's not we, what we do because that's what you do in church. This is, should be the overflow of our heart for God. And even if you can't hold a tune, God still wants you to make what's called a joyful noise. On the flip side of this, there are a few things more encouraging to believers and convicting to non-believers than the strong, the meaningful singing of the church. You walk into that building and everyone is singing like they mean it. That is impactful. That's edifying. When, when God's people really believe what they sing, they'll sing like they mean it. And this is most certainly worship that pleases God. So first and foremost, the primary expression of worship to God is your voice. God wants you to sing. Now, there's probably no disagreement there. I'm sure you all understand that, agree with that. It's kind of obvious, but we want to point it out. Now, since we're talking about singing in worship, this is probably a good place to also talk about musical instruments because those all almost all accompany our singing. So what about instruments? Can they be used in worship? And and if so, which ones? This is a good place to insert this discussion, so I'll give you some sub-points. Starting with this, musical expressions of worship are legitimate. Musical expressions of worship are legitimate. By the way, I hope you picked up a bulletin. I always try and keep outlines very simple and just straightforward, not to get in the way. But this is a little out of hand. So I printed the outline in your bulletin. It's like the only time I've actually ever done this, but you can follow along if you want. Musical expressions of worship are legitimate. You're going to wade through a bunch of subpoints. Anyway, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but believe it or not, there's a small number of Christians who actually believe that to Worship God with instruments is to sin. You are sinning by using any instrument. The New Testament doesn't mention them, so they take that as law, as God's decree, forbidding them. I I hope none of you are convinced by that. That that is precisely the definition of legalism. I mean, you, you can't take omission and turn it into decree. You can't take something that God never said and, and make a rule or command out of it. That, that is like the definition of legalism. That's, like, that's it. Now, it's true, though. The New Testament doesn't mention instruments in connection with church worship. But we know for certain that God is not opposed to musical worship. 
In fact, he welcomes it. In Revelation chapter 5, which is the closest thing we'll get in the New Testament, we've got that picture of heaven, and you see these 24 elders representing the people of God. And they're standing before God's throne, and they're pictured as holding harps. And as they go on to sing God's praises, it doesn't say, but the implication is pretty clear that they use those harps to sing God's praises. And that happens two other times in Revelation. God himself employs trumpets in the rapture and in judgment, so it's not like he's morally opposed to instruments. And then furthermore, we have the overwhelming Old Testament precedent of using instruments in worship. Now, it's true, we're not under the Old Covenant, so you can't point to the Old Testament as mandates for the church. What we see in the Old Testament was written for national Israel. We are not national Israel. We can learn principles, but we're not under the Old Covenant. So what David did with his Levites, that's not telling us what we must do as the church, but it still is our biblical example. And from that, we have an overwhelming establishment of precedent in the Old Testament. The Old Testament shows that without a doubt, God approves and welcomes musical worship. I mean, just look at David himself, the king. He was a musician, and he's the ultimate precursor to Christ, and he was all about, you know, musical worship to God. It says a lot. Anyway, I could say a lot more here, but I don't think I need to convince you all too much about this. Instruments may legitimately be used in worshiping God. Do understand this, that instruments should never replace congregational singing, though. That's never the case in Scripture and the Old Testament. God wants you to use your voice above all, always. Instruments should be there to accompany, to complement congregational singing and never to replace it. But in that way, musical expressions of worship are legitimate. So first, they are legitimate. Secondly, musical expressions of worship are diverse. They are diverse. If you want, you can turn to Psalm 150 with me. If you look back to the Old Testament precedent of music worship, you will quickly see Israel, they employed just about every instrument they had. They had access to. Their musical expressions of worship were quite diverse. They used harps, lyres, hand drums, tambourines, cymbals, rattlers, trumpets, other horns. In the shofar, it's a ram's horn. I mean, they used pretty much every instrument. And the last psalm gives us the clearest example of them using pretty much every instrument, more or less. I mean, there's obviously many more, but you get the point. Psalm 150, look at verse 3. It says, praise him with trumpet sound, praise him with harp and lyre, praise him with timbrel and dancing, praise him with stringed instruments and pipe, praise him with loud cymbals, praise him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord, praise the Lord. We have breath, metaphorically, instruments have breath, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And there are countless verses where Israel employed a wide variety of musical instruments in worshiping God, and God was pleased. Again, some might argue that these instruments, you know, they passed away when the Old Covenant passed away. And it's true, we're not under the Old Covenant, we're under the the New Covenant, the church. But actually, these instruments were never a part of the Old Covenant. God never prescribed these instruments in his law. It's just what Israel used to worship God. And for that reason, it still serves as a strong precedent and example for how we are to musically worship God today. The conclusion we can draw from this Old Testament precedent is simply this. If you get the essence of worship right, then you have freedom in the expression of worship. That will be a principle we'll hear a lot today. If you get the essence of worship right, then there is freedom. Within guidelines, there's freedom in the expression of, of worship. God's standard for worship was the same in the Old Testament. He still demanded worship in spirit and truth. He still wanted truth, heart-driven worship. The essence of worship never changes, but if you have the right essence, then we will see freedom of expression within biblical guidelines. And and that's what Israel showcased with their instruments. There certainly was a freedom of expression. They used many different types of instruments. They expressed their worship in a broad spectrum of ways from singing to dancing to using every instrument to shouting to clapping to bowing down. I mean, you name it. We'll we'll see these later. But 
their musical expression of worship was diverse, and there's room for diverse musical worship today. So now we can translate this to our modern instrumental worship of God. And we can still say that if you get the essence of worship right, there is still freedom of expression. Musically, there's no inherently evil instrument. There are guidelines to consider. We'll do that very shortly. There are some guidelines to consider. But the Bible sets the precedent for diversity, for using many different types of instruments, and no instrument is forbidden. And already that fact alone, this biblical understanding alone, should settle and put to an end a lot of the sources of contention in these worship wars. So much of the worship wars centers around instruments because people have their sacred instruments. Most often in our age, it's the piano and the organ. In years past, it was the trumpet. I mean, it changes, but people have their sacred instruments and they believe only those instruments are suitable for worship and nothing else. Now, piano and organ, for example, are amazing instruments. In fact, organ is one of my favorite instruments. We, we saw one of the largest organs in the world played in the Sydney uh, Orchestra. It's pretty amazing. It's loud. I like it because it's just so loud. Probably a guy thing. But they're, they're not sacred. There's no sacred instrument. Piano and organ, they're, they're relatively modern instruments. I mentioned a while ago, piano wasn't invented until the 1700s. You can, you can use them in worship. Yeah, you have the freedom to use them to worship God, yes. But you cannot make any biblical case to use them exclusively. The only case you can make is one of personal preference. And that's what we dealt with in the first two messages. That, that doesn't stand. Another heated issue in the worship wars is, is the use of modern instruments like guitar and drums. Like I said earlier, jokingly, but for a while, the, the fundamentalist refrain in America was drums are of the devil. I mean, they're an evil instrument. And some people still believe that. But you may choose to believe that, but no biblical case can be made for that. I mean, the Bible gives you nothing for or against any instrument. You're not going to find it in the Bible. And all arguments against modern instruments, they fall flat. You know, the pagan association instrument or rather, the pagan association argument falls flat. The Jews, like we just read, they use lyres and tambourines. Lyre is a stringed instrument not that dissimilar from a guitar. Tambourines, it's basically a hand drum. But the point is, those instruments, they were part and parcel with pagan worship. I mean, pagan worship is defined by lyres, that instrument. In fact, every instrument Israel used they were invented by pagans and used first and more by pagans, but that never stopped them from still using those instruments. Israel employed them in a sanctified manner to worship God, and God accepted it. I mean, pagans use their voices too. Should we not sing because they sing? No. See, if you focus only on the externals, you're going to get all these issues wrong, and that's where people run into problems. But if you get the essence of worship right, which we've already spent four messages on, then the expression should fall into place and you will see that a true heart of worship for God, a true heart of worship for God will sanctify these various expressions of worship with different instruments. Again, like I labored in those first two messages, most, if not all, of the division in the worship wars, it comes from personal preference or tradition. But hopefully you can see, you can't make any biblical case for or against any instrument. And hopefully you learn we need to subject our traditions and our preferences to one another for the sake of unity. And just let's stick with the Bible as our standard, not go beyond to destroy the unity of the church over something like your tradition or your preference. Let me do this. This will put the whole discussion into perspective for you. I'm going to give you an excerpt from a U.S. newspaper. This one's not a joke. This one's real. An excerpt from a U.S. newspaper which was written objecting to new trends in church music. This reference comes from an article by Kenny Lamb on Worship Wars, but the original article, it was written against the introduction of new instruments and new songs in church worship. And that's a problem many people still have today. They don't like new songs and they don't like new instruments in their church worship. So this article was written given reasons to oppose new songs and new instruments in worship. So let me read you seven of the reasons. Why should you, according to this article, why should you oppose 
new songs and new instruments. Well, reason number one, they're too new. Number two, they're often worldly, even blasphemous. Number three, the new Christian music is not pleasant as the more established style. Number four, because there are so many songs, you can't learn them all. Number five, they put too much emphasis on instrumental music rather than godly lyrics. Number six, this new music creates disturbances, making people act indecently and disorderly. And number seven, the preceding generation got along without it. And there's more. That's just like the first seven. Some of you may be thinking, yeah, that sounds about right. That's why I don't like that instrument or that song. But here's the kicker. This article was written by a pastor in 1723 attacking Isaac Watts, who's the author of your favorite hymns, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross and Joy to the World. So that's called perspective. <laughs> I mean, when you think about all your favorite instruments and your favorite songs, you need to realize that not too long ago, your favorite instruments were considered contemporary and secular and, and ungodly and worldly. And you think about all those reasons that you really oppose that new song or that new instrument. And of course, we're talking about godly songs with the right lyrics, but you get the drift. All those reasons you oppose that new song or that new instrument, not too long ago, all those same arguments were used against your favorite songs and your favorite instruments, like When I Survey the Wondrous Cross on Piano. There are many more amusing examples of this. There's actually a lot. I cut them out for time. One kind of funny one. In the 1920s, the Catholic Church forbid the use of piano because of its associations with jazz. There's just there's so many of these down throughout church history. It, it always changes. But hopefully this perspective helps end a lot of the contention around instruments or songs. Again, it goes back to the, those first two messages on tradition or preference. It's what it boils down to. You might have your instrument, your favorite songs, and you can have your favorites. There's nothing wrong with that. But to think only your instruments produce reverent worship is just wrong. You'll never make a biblical case for that. If you allow musical instruments at all, then for the same reasons you must accept, as God did, a diversity in expression with those many different types of musical instruments. Again, what's the principle? If you get the essence of worship right, Heart, heart, truth-informed, heart-driven worship, then you have freedom with the expression of worship, and that includes musical instruments. Now, I will say that freedom of expression has its limits. There are guidelines. There are conditions. Let's talk about that now. Number three, a third sub-point for you. Musical expressions of worship are conditioned. They're legitimate. They're diverse. Number three, musical expressions of worship are conditioned. They are conditioned. I do need to point out, there are biblical guidelines or conditions on how we express our worship, whether it's with your voice or with an instrument. Yes, we all have freedom of worship, but it's not a free-for-all. It's not like you can do whatever you want because you, you want to or you feel led. There's freedom of expression within biblical guidelines. You have to stay within the Bible's guidelines and, and God's his, his, his fence, so to speak. So what are God's biblical guidelines for how we express our musical worship? Well, here's three more subpoints. That's why I gave you the outline. But I'll give you three main ones, three main conditions for how we express our worship. Number one, musical expressions must have the right order. They must have the right order. Basically what I mean here is anything we do to express worship, be it the style or the instrument, it must be done in an orderly, edifying manner. It must be done in, in an orderly fashion. This is a very clear guideline that comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And Paul, that whole chapter basically deals with the church's corporate worship in many forms. And when the Corinthian church gathered to worship, it was chaos. It was just total chaos. There were many gifted people in that church, but they were quite spiritually mature. And they were using their gifts, some of them like speaking in tongues, for example, almost in a competitive manner. They would speak out of turn. They would speak at the same time. They're just, it was a free-for-all. It was chaos. It was confusion. It was not edifying. And when Paul wrote to them, he admonished them in the chapter, basically to knock it off. And he says in verse 33, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. 
church worship time, it's not a free-for-all. You might have a contribution with your spiritual gift, whatever it might be, but it's not about you doing whatever you feel led to do whenever you want. There needs to be an established order, which comes from God's shepherds. A worship time, it's an intentional, purposeful time. And it has an extremely narrow focus to exalt God and edify others, and that's it. There's nothing else involved other than exalting God and edifying others. And that needs to be reflected in our worship practices today. And so he says in verse 40, But all things, covers the whole chapter, all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. So whatever we do, whatever instrument, whatever style, needs to be done in, in an orderly, mindful manner. So, okay, you get that. That's the first limitation. Number two, musical expressions must have the right motive. The second kind of condition on, on how we express worship must have the right, right motive. This one's also pretty simple, but very important. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. And he condemned the scribes and Pharisees for this. You know, For example, when they gave money to the poor, they would literally sound a trumpet. So everyone would turn and look and see them and their good deed. But of course, their self-serving motive totally nullified their worship. That, that's, not, that's false worship to God. The same is true concerning our music worship. Nothing we do should be man-centered. Nothing. And we live in an American Idol culture. We don't want music leaders. We want rock stars. And in many cases... Literally, the spotlight is taken off of God and put onto the musicians. We have to beware of this. The music leader himself must check his motives and his actions and ensure he's not trying to draw attention to himself. He's not trying to elicit praise unto himself for his great performance, but simply to God. He needs to step out of the way as much as possible. At the same time, the congregation must check themselves. And any time you put someone up front, He's going to draw attention to himself just by definition. That, that's unavoidable. But check yourself from giving undue attention to the music leader. Music leader might be doing nothing to try and draw your attention, but you might find yourself focusing on you know, what he's wearing or how he's playing, things that don't matter. And that's on you. You need to check your motives and your worship and make sure all of our worship is just geared toward God. And for this reason, I know a lot of people who just simply choose to close their eyes during music worship time to avoid all distractions and it's not a bad idea at all. Okay, number three. Musical expressions must have the right expectations. They must have the right order, the right motive, and a third condition on how we express musical worship, the right expectations. And I need to explain this. I'm talking about cultural expectations. Like I've been saying, what matters is the essence of worship You get the essence right, you will find generally freedom of expression. However, how you express worship will often be very limited by your culture, even your church culture. It will be culturally conditioned. And that's okay. But let me explain that. It's just another way of saying different cultures have different ways of expressing their heart worship unto God. And and that's okay. There's room for different cultures to express reverent worship in different ways. For example, picture an American missionary goes to a a tribe in Africa. I'm talking like a Stone Age tribe in Africa, shares the gospel. By God's grace, the whole tribe is converted. And they start, you know, they plant a little church there. How would you expect that new church to worship God musically? Should you import a pipe organ and teach them Western hymns? Some have actually done that, and it's, it's, it's foolish. The gospel doesn't obliterate cultures. The gospel transforms people. It changes hearts. It produces the essence of worship. Yes, but then it allows for freedom of expression of that worship. And the gospel can accommodate different cultural expressions of worship within these guidelines. So, for example, that tribe, they would be free to worship God with their tribal instruments. There would be nothing wrong with that. Now, I want to be very clear, the gospel itself must never be changed, must never be watered down, must never be accommodated for different cultures. We don't change our message based on cultures. We don't ever water that down. That cannot change because that that deals with the essence. 
And the essence doesn't change. But with these external matters, these expressions, they they can change. There is freedom and cultural considerations can be made. Now we can apply this to America, to our culture. Now if you lived in a rural, traditional area, for example, you'd probably be wise to have a, a church led by piano. Their music led by a piano that fits our traditional culture today. Remember, that changes every generation, traditional changes. But right now, that's piano, and that's great. That's fantastic. That would fit that church's culture better, and, and that's okay. You don't change the gospel. You don't change the message. You don't change the essence of worship, but you can change that to fit that culture a little bit. Same thing, if you're in an urban or inner city area or many suburban areas, a guitar-led worship would probably fit that culture better as well. You'd be speaking their cultural language, and that's okay. Hopefully you get the drift here. It's all about distinguishing essence from expression. God is delighted to be praised by a variety of different people groups in a variety of different ways. Throughout thousands of years, different people groups have sung songs with so many different instruments and sounds. If we heard them all at once, it would be so bizarre, and we're just used to what we're used to. But God is pleased to have all the nations sing his praises in their language, in their sound, in their song. He's pleased. There's freedom in, in such expressions of worship. Yes, there are biblical guidelines, so it's not a free-for-all. Our worship still must have the right order, the right motive, and the right cultural expectations or cultural conditions. All right, well, that will that'll do it for point number one. We're still under point number one. The primary expression of worship to God is the human voice. And that's true. That's our primary way we express our worship with the human voice. And we include a lot about instrumental worship, which almost all his companies are singing. Now, number two. This is actually big point number two, if you're following along. The secondary expression of worship to God is the human body. The secondary expression of worship to God is the human body. Now, real quick, I don't want you to panic. You might be seeing we're only halfway done with our outline, and you look at the clock like there's only a few minutes left. But don't fear. I'm not pushing it to another sermon. But the good news is, literally everything we just said about the musical expression of worship, it's going to apply one-for-one one directly to the bodily expression of worship. They're almost the same issue, just different subjects. It's all going to fall into play. So real quick, we'll finish this by addressing all those remaining questions you have about the bodily expression of worship. So just follow along. First, we can say the bodily expressions of worship are legitimate. Same outline, bodily expressions of worship are legitimate. And for all the same reasons, musical expressions are legitimate, so are bodily expressions. Nothing is forbidden in the New Testament or the Old, and there's a massive Old Testament precedent for using your body in some way to express worship to God. The case is even stronger here because there are actually several examples in the New Testament of using your body to express worship and reverence to God. For example, Jesus himself prayed several times by raising his hands. 1 Timothy 2.8 tells men to pray lifting up holy hands. It's not a mandate since the emphasis is on holiness, but it shows God is not opposed to raising hands. Also back in Revelation 5, remember those 24 elders? They sing their songs with their harps. They also bow down. I mean, they face plant to worship God. They're expressing their worship with their body by bowing down, and God accepts that worship. So for all the same reasons as musical instruments and more, we can say bodily expressions of worship are legitimate. Secondly, bodily expressions of worship are diverse. Same thing again. You look at that Old Testament precedent, we find that biblical bodily expressions there are very diverse. Again, these examples are not mandates for us. They're not telling us what we must do. But we are shown there's a freedom of expression. So you look at Israel. How do they express worship? They raise hands. They kneel. They bow down. They employed clapping. Psalm 47 verse 1 prescribes. It says, Oh, clap your hands, all peoples. And the Jews, even on occasion, express worship through dancing. It's true. They did it. There's dancing in the Bible. Exodus 15, for example, Miriam and several other ladies, they took tambourines 
And they danced and they sung praises to God in remembrance of his deliverance of Israel through the Red Sea. I mean, God just part of the Red Sea and they, they came across. He just redeemed them. So they sung and danced to praise him. And it was appropriate. You also probably familiar how King David himself, 2 Samuel 6.14 says, he danced with all his might before the Ark of the Covenant as it was being brought into Jerusalem. And also you have Psalm 149 and Psalm 150. They both prescribe and they say, let them praise his name with dancing. So contrary to cultural fundamentalists, dancing is not inherently sinful. I understand my wording. It's not inherently sinful. Now, I have to say, be very careful. Do not think about the few dancing instances of the Bible. Don't think about that in any way like modern dancing. These are very different. That much is true. So sorry to those who want to bring in line dancing or ballroom dancing to the church. Not going to work. That's not what we're talking about at all. The dancing we see in the Bible, it was actually never with a partner. It was never sexually suggestive. It was never lust-inducing. It was pretty much just leaping for joy in a circle. I mean, honestly, that that's what it was. They were just leaping for joy around one another in a circle. And Every example we have is sexually segregated as well. So sorry to burst your bubble. Most modern dancing would be quite inappropriate in the context of worship for God because you have to face it, almost all of it, And one way or another is sexual in nature. So sorry, nothing you see on Dancing with the Stars should ever be in church. Now a time might come though when the truth of God moves you to leap around for joy and that would be totally appropriate. And all the same points apply. You get the essence of worship right, you have freedom of expression. The precedent from David is very strong. Again, he's this musician who God makes king and he makes him the ultimate type of Christ. And David, he he knew worship. He had a heart for God. God moved his heart. And David expressed that worship in so many ways. He sung songs. He wrote songs. He played all these instruments. He danced. He leapt for joy. He bowed down. He raised his hands. We aren't saying you must do this, you must do that. But again, the point is clear. There are freedom now, there is freedom of expression, even with your bodies. Now, the same conditions apply, so we can finish with this. Bodily expressions of worship are conditioned. In the same way, they are conditioned. It's still not a free-for-all. All the same conditions and guidelines apply. First, bodily expressions must have the right order. From singing to using instruments to using your body, God is still a God of order and peace, not chaos and confusion. So however you might express worship to God with your body, it must be done orderly and mindfully. Now this totally throws out the window uncontrolled, spastic, ecstatic motions. They have no place. Now I generally love and appreciate my charismatic brethren who you know raise their hands in worship. There's nothing wrong with that at all. But there is a fringe of charismatics who believe they're worshiping God by running up and down the aisles, falling over, rolling around. You may have seen videos of this or been in a church like this. And this we have to reject. And that's basically the disorderly 1 Corinthians 14 church on steroids. It's chaos. Whatever you do in worship, from your singing to your body, it has to be done orderly, mindfully, in an edifying manner. There's freedom, but that's a limitation the Bible gives. Secondly, bodily expressions must have the right motive. Same thing here as well. Whatever you do must come with the intention of exalting God, not just drawing attention to yourself. So if you feel led to raise your hand in a worship song, go ahead. You must always, we all must always ask your heart though, you know, why are you doing it? Are you doing it so that everyone behind you can see how spiritual you are, how connected with God you are? Then then it's false worship. It means nothing to God. And check your heart. If that's your motive, don't raise your hands. Or better yet, change your motive. Bring your motive in line with God. Everything we do, whether it's singing or using our bodies, everything we need to make sure our motives are, are to glorify God alone and never to glorify self one way or another. That all your motives and all your expressions of worship 
be untarnished by self-righteousness or self-exaltation. Something that, that's on, on, it's on all of us to keep your own heart in check. And then finally, bodily expressions must have the right expectations. And here I'm talking about those cultural conditions again. You have freedom of expression. There are no biblical mandates one way or another about using your body, using your instruments. You don't have to raise your hands. You don't have to bow down. You're, you're free to do so. However, whatever you do will likely be largely conditioned by your culture, even your church culture. And again, that's okay. There's, there's room for different cultures. For example, go back to dancing. In the ancient culture of Israel, or in many, many modern Eastern cultures or uh, tribal cultures, dancing, it's a totally normal expression of worship. There's nothing strange about it. It's accepted. It's not distracting because everyone is doing it. It's a part of life. So in such a setting, could dancing be an appropriate expression of worship? It could. Yes, it could. I mean, Israel did it. When you look at American culture, though, especially our American church culture, it's, it's quite a different story in the vast majority of churches. Dancing here is completely abnormal. It's, it's never done. It's never how we culturally express worship. Dancing in America, it's not associated with worship whatsoever. It's associated with expressing sexuality. So although theoretically you could express worship through dancing, through leaping for joy, in reality, in 99% of churches, if you did so, you would actually be detracting from worship. Why? Because it's so culturally out of place and unexpected, you could not help but overwhelmingly distract everybody. You would take their minds off of God and detract from their focus on the Lord. Now, you might think, you know, why should I be limited by others? I can't control what they think. But that was actually one of Paul's main arguments in 1 Corinthians 14. The focus of our worship, it's glorifying God and, if anything, edifying others. The last thing I want to do is to stumble someone or distract them during worship. Therefore, I will limit myself in certain contexts or certain cultures for the sake of others. That's actually what they needed to do in certain situations. But hopefully you can see what I mean with this idea of cultural conditioning. You apply this to clapping hands, raising hands, whatever you want. These expressions, they're legitimate. You have churches where they're expected, they're part of the church culture. You have churches where they're not expected, they're not part of the church culture, and both are fine. Both are meeting their local cultural expectations of worship, and that's okay. Cultures can change, they don't have to. I mean, there's freedom here in these regards. All right, well, I think that'll do it for now. I've covered a lot of ground today in this whole series, but I hope, I really hope everything we've studied has given you good biblical perspective on these worship wars. Worship, that's why we exist. That's why God created us. The last thing that should ever divide us is worship. And so we need to rightly understand the essence of worship and the expression of worship. And today we learned that if you get the essence right, I mean, really right, and there's freedom with how you express your worship to God within some biblical guidelines. As a closing thought, I want to leave you with an encouragement. The day will come, this church, maybe you go visit another church, the day will come when someone will rub your worship traditions or preferences the wrong way. You're going to see someone and they'll do something you're not accustomed to, it's not what you do, it's not what you're used to. Maybe they'll raise their hands. Maybe they'll clap. You know, how will you react when that happens? Hopefully, now through being equipped with a biblical perspective, though you may not do that yourself, at least you will not despise your brother or your sister who chooses to express their worship in that way. You can't see their heart. So you have to beware of passing judgment. You don't know their motives, for example. Really, you need to check your own heart. So long as they're not sinning and they're not blatantly trying to draw attention to themselves, show patience, show tolerance and love for those who express worship differently than you do. And to think back to David, he's dancing before the ark with all of his might. It was, was that true worship? It was. It was a true expression of worship. But do you remember his wife, Miriam? In the same chapter, it said she was watching him from the window up above. And as she saw him leaping about, the text says she despised him in her heart. 
It just made her so mad. Why? Well, for all the wrong reasons. She thought, you know, that's inappropriate. That's not fitting for a king. What will people think of me? I don't want to be associated with that. She had all these justifications that people still use, none of them biblical. But later in the chapter, David rebuked her straight up. He said, look, I was celebrating before the Lord, not before man. His heart was right and pure. He had the essence of worship you know, nailed down right there. And that, that expression was totally fine. It was even culturally acceptable, actually. The final verse of that chapter says, Miriam died barren. It's a subtle way of God saying, he doesn't like it when you despise his true worshipers. So just put all this through your biblical grid and your of these principles now. Just check your heart and everything. You can have you can have your traditions and your preferences. You can have your your culture that you're used to, and that, that's all okay. The goal is not uniformity. The goal is not unanimity. You don't all have to be the same, but the goal is unity. And if you want to end the worship wars once for all, do not despise others who, within the right guidelines, express worship differently than you. This takes us back to Ephesians 4, which is where we began. Let's remember to always, Ephesians 4, 2 and 3, with humility and gentleness, with patience, show tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's how we do it. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we... We do thank you for this time in your word, this time through this study of, of music in, in the church, music in our worship. And the Bible doesn't have a massive amount to say about it one way or another. There's not a lot of prescriptions to go by, but yet your word is still sufficient to guide us, to give us the guidance we need. We see most of all what the essence of worship is all about. It, it starts with your truth, knowing you, the God who made us, the God who saved us through his son, Christ Jesus, who lived and died on the cross for our forgiveness that should move our hearts to, to love you, to, to express thankfulness with joy in many different ways. And Lord, if we get that essence right, you've given us freedom of expression because you know we're different. We are different people, different cultures, different backgrounds. And you accept a variety of ways of, of exalting you. But what matters most is that heart of worship. Keep us within bounds, Lord. We don't want to ever discourage or detract or distract others. We don't want to be a stumbling block to others. But at the same time, we, we want to worship you. Keep our hearts fixed on you. May we lift up your name in all that we do. May we get this right. And, and above all here, lastly, may we love others who are different. So long as they're within these biblical guidelines, may we show them that grace, that kindness, that tolerance to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Churches need not separate for something as trivial as instruments or raising hands. There's room for all in, in your gracious and glorious body. So we, we want to do so now. We, we thank you, the God who made and saved us. May that truth fill our hearts and may we finish our time by expressing this worship now through song. We love you. We thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.